And now, back at the station, Gene Shepard once again takes up the cudgels for truth and beauty. <laughs> you didn't think I'd make it, did you? Oh, I'm always here. You're not going to get rid of me that easy, you guys. Yes, sir. Back at the station, Gene Shepard once again takes up the cudgels for truth and beauty. Not only that, friends, he takes up his trusty juice harp, takes it out of its alligator leather sheath, gives the signal to Corny to pick it up, and let's go. Listen to me, Corny. He gives the signal to Corny and says, let's hear it. Yeah, I hear you talking Sinuses, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, Friday night. Thank God, it's Friday night. Thank God, God, thank God. Well, oh, by the way, uh, uh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, we just have a prediction here that we'd like to make. Any day now, I'm predicting any day now, the first guy is going to get busted for possession of diet yuhu without a prescription. <laughs> well, it's got to happen. Everything's getting illegal. Have you notice that? I mean, it's uh, a diet you who is now turning out, you know, it's bad. Uh, you know, this whole business of, uh, what is it, cyclomates? Oh, I heard Barry Farley. He got mad at that. Did you hear that? He said, it's time now for us people to get mad about this. Well, I don't know what he's getting mad about. Uh, you know, I mean, I can do without, uh, you know, uh, without diet sarsaparilla very well. There's a few other things that if I found out that they discovered that they were not bad, in fact, they were evil, I'd get pretty bugged. But uh, uh, I suspect that the... Oh, and what is it now? It's MSG? Okay. All right. Now we're all set to go now. Uh, by the way, uh, I, I have a good question was asked. Uh, I saw a commercial the other night. Can you give me an echo chamber in there? All right. I'll, I'll call for it. For it. For it. Hello. Let's try that again. Hello. Hello. Test, 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 test. Gee, that's great. Groovy, 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 going, 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 going. Ah! It's amazing what can be done. It's amazing what can be done with the with the the modern technology. It's fantastic. Now, 
Wait a minute. Just hold on a minute here. I just want to try a few things here. Uh, oh, uh, speaking of modern technology, uh, just about this time of the year, we usually try to take uh, time to time a little note of uh, various uh, fantastic gifts that are being made available for Christmas. And it's, it's beginning to approach that time. And uh, uh, here's a new one I think is just going to be so exciting for so many of you. Uh, let's see. Get me. I'll have to blow a little uh, little fanfare here. Da -da 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 -da. Yeah, fanfare. <laughs> that was pretty good, wasn't it? As a gift, a little suggestion for those of you, you know, that are looking for uh, things that, uh, for people who've got everything. A good morning branding iron. Uh, I uh, read the copy for you. A charming way to start the day to greet each and every one at the breakfast table. A cast aluminum branding iron with a wooden handle. You simply heat it on your stove for less than a minute, press it on your toast, and there you are. It brands good morning on the toast enough to make you want to fall up. Imagine getting up at 6 in the morning to come down to this rat trap. Your feet are rotten, your eyeballs are hanging down and bouncing off your clavicle, and somebody puts a piece of toast in front of you and says, Good morning on it. I'll tell you, you know, I would, that immediately gives, no, it gives me a, a great idea of what I would do with that branding iron. Because, you know, you can use branding irons for a lot more than just branding toast. I could just see, and I could think of a place where I could brand somebody with that, too. <laughs> and, and uh, by the way, the company that makes these Good Morning Branding Irons says that they'll put other words on it if you want. Mm -hmm. What would you like to brand on somebody? Hey, is Tom O'Malley a comedian? He never said nothing funny on any of them shell commercials that I've seen yet. Just stuff like, hey, you don't mean to tell me that you like this gas? Oh, come on, you don't like shell, do you? How come you like shell, huh? Jesus, side-splitting comic. I'll tell I like side-splitting. Uh, you know what I like, too? I like knee slappers. Is there anybody out there that knows a good knee slapper? Huh? That reminds me, speaking of terrific knee slappers, if the kids were not up, if I wasn't on the radio, I'd tell you the joke about the three the three Polish cowboys in this Third Avenue bar. Have you heard that one? Three Polish cowboys, the Third Avenue bar, and this uh, bow-legged dachshund comes in, and he orders a double stinger on the rocks. Hear that one about the three Polish cowboys? Well, I'm not going to be the one to tell you, because uh, yeah, I don't want I don't want any of this bad stuff happening. Uh, but uh, anyway. Would you please do that so that the people can hear that? Would you please do that? I think that's sickening. All right. Would you please do that so that the nice folks... Well, let's hear it. What the heck was that? All right. All right. Well, we'll file that. It says boo. Okay. Go ahead. You know, you notice, you notice that, uh, that Ed McMahon... Ed McMahon does not sit there when Johnny Carson is telling those very bad jokes that he tells. He does not sit there and holler, Boo! 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 Johnny Carson's a thing! Boo! No, he does not do that. Yes, would you please, uh... Yes, I'm listening. Not telling the joke. I'm getting booed for not telling the joke. Yeah. Listen, you don't know how loud you'd boo if I told it. Okay. That's my trouble, see? When I tell a joke, I get booed. When I don't tell a joke, I get booed. 
so, you know, six of one, half dozen the other, you have to pick it up and lay it down. Did I ever tell you about the time I'm working in this radio station? I guess I should. I've never tell you the radio station stories, do I, about the time. No? Oh, oh, there goes Keith. He won't listen to those. I don't blame him. He's got plenty of himself. But it has to do with an engineer. And uh, I don't think I'll tell you this story. You know, I, 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 I don't want to tell you this because, it's, it's, first of all, it's sacrilegious. And... Uh, no, I don't want to be sacrilegious. And now back at the studio, Gene Shepard once again pursues truth and beauty. Oh, you want to hear about the, the story? Now, you stay in here, Keith, and I'll tell a story about radio, okay? Let's set the mood. Uh, while we're doing that, uh, would you please uh, leave, Would you please take one of those cuts out of those series of records? No, no, we're going to set the mood. Just pick one of the worst you can find. We're going to set the mood. I'll set... And while she's doing that, uh, Corny, would you please start at turntable number two? We'll see what comes up, because we're going to set the mood for tonight's thrilling adventure in the life of a fighter for truth and beauty. Yes, and out of the Midwest he comes, riding what appears to be a 1953 Hupmobile. Yes, and he calls it Old Clunker, and he's galloping against the forces out there, evil, bad stuff, crumminess. All right, that's enough, that's enough. Gee, it was nice, wasn't it? That was righteous stuff, friend. Real good. That comes from right down there in the bottle. It's been aged there. Now, uh, speaking of uh, aging in the bottle here, uh, <laughs> uh, you want to hear a true story? Of, of... Now, you're not going to believe it because it sounds too pat. In fact, just about an hour before... We came on the air. I told this story to Lester Smith, the eminent newsman. And Les laughed so hard that he knocked his typewriter off on the floor. If you're listening, George, you'll pay for it. He said, it's all right. So don't get excited. You see, he was right in the middle of typing an important bulletin. Well, yeah, well as a matter of fact, uh, we're the only station that has uh, kerosene lamps in the studio. Uh, you know, but uh, I don't mind that. It gives a little atmosphere here. You sit around here and, and uh, have doilies and stuff. And you want to hear a typical WOR record out of our library? Wait, listen. No, no, you got to set up there. Listen, this is a typical WOR record, please. Please. And now we bring you the top, the down top tunes. To the play, Who the heck is this? This is not the Beatles. To the dear old Rudy Valley. Rudy Valley. There is a Rudy Valley. The whip and poofs assembly. <laughs> Get out of here. Holy. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm serious, you know. You know, the table's done at Maury's. Not only that, do you have Clyde McCoy Sugar Blues on that? See if you can find that one. That That's a... I'm going to tell you a sad tale of woe. Yeah, it's on that. It's on those cuts. That record, this this record that I'm about to play you, was my old man's favorite recording. Yeah, you got it, Lee. Now I'm I'm serious. I'm not inventing this. This was the, the my favorite, my old man's favorite record. And we had this we had this record player, and uh, the old man would, would come home at night. See, and it's hard to believe that you know that 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 people. Uh, other than your own crowd, you know, can have aesthetics <laughs> that are totally alien to you. Well, my own man would come home saying, I'm, I'm sitting in the kitchen. You got it. I want to I lay the scene for you. See, I, I, I'm sitting in the kitchen scene, and I've been playing football. It's usually the, after 
you know, practice or something. I'm feeling rotten. You come home, you know, after you, after you practice football, there's all kinds of little scratches you got over you, all over you, for one thing, on your elbows and your itch. Most people think in terms of football like getting your collarbone broken or your leg broken. But what I remember about playing football all the time was I was continually covered with scratches from, uh, you know, sliding in the dirt and grass and stuff. And whenever I take a shower, splinters would come out of the back of my neck. And I was itching all the time. And uh, I had these, my uniform was itchy, too, because it, uh, you know, hadn't been cleaned for eight seasons and had maggots growing in the armpits and stuff. And so, yeah, you don't see that side of football. You really don't. And, uh, and uh, well, anyway, I'd come home, Sam, I remember sweating, sitting there at the kitchen table. And the old man comes walking into the kitchen. He comes in. And it's bowling night. He bowled on Friday night. And it's about 10.30. It's bowling night. And he has had a couple of snifters of Jack Daniels on the way home. See? And he walks in. And he slams down at the kitchen table. He lays his bowling ball down. He had a bowling ball. See, he kept it in this this blue vinyl case had his name on the side in gold. He puts it down, puts the bowling ball down, opens up the refrigerator, and he looks in, and immediately you know the smell that comes out of the refrigerator. This is uh, this refrigerator smell, you know. It's old pieces of cabbage and stuff in it, you know. A bite out of a hamburger that's been there since uh, last July. You never know when you might want to eat it, and now it's kind of green, you know, and all the grease and crud is on the top of it. And you can smell this dish of peas, that your mother, one time you had a half a dish of peas left over and all that gray stuff is on the edge of it, scene. And the old man opens up the refrigerator and whoosh, just comes out and he looks in. He's had a rotten night. His team has lost three straight. And boy, when he ever got, you know, when he was bowling and, and uh, his team would get really belted around by another team, he'd get bugged. I mean, this is the true competitive bowler. They take it serious. And he lays his bowling ball down, opens up the refrigerator, and he sort of backs off. He says, who drank the beer? It's no beer. And then he would slam the door. He was looking forward to this beer. See, all night long, coming home, he was thinking of the beer. Somebody drank the beer. He runs out the back porch, down around the corner, and goes a half a block, and he goes into Asher Schlager's grocery store and comes back with a six-pack. Okay, you got the picture now. Now he comes in, he puts the six-pack and lays it down on the table. And he's usually uh, smoking something, you know, he's eight cigarettes going. He was a fantastic smoker. He's got lucky strikes sticking out of his ears. And he opens up a shirt. Now, he had these, he had the, always in the wintertime, you see. This was the Midwest. He always wore these long johns. And they had about nine buttons missing. Takes off his shirt, sits there, opens the first can of beer. Takes a big suck of the can, you know. You could just see it going down. Now he feels a little better. And it's Friday night. He's lost three straight. And then he says to me, he says, how about turning on the record player? And that made me sick right away. Because I knew what he wanted to hear. Whenever he was in this mood, you know, he didn't want to hear music. He wanted to hear this stuff. And so he would get up, and he'd take another suck at a can of beer, and he walks in the next room where this Sears Roebuck All-State record player, you know, which we got from the catalog. And so he turns it on, and he takes out his record, and he puts it on. Whenever he had a bad night around the bowling alley, or he had a fight with my mother, or uh, Uncle Al and he had a fist fight, I mean, good stuff like that, he would play this record. 
Now, I can't explain to you the aesthetics of this record. It totally eludes me. What did he see in this record? Is there anybody out there who thinks this is the best record to listen to this? That's something I said, oh, come on. It would make me so sick I would get fucked, you know? And, and here I have my stack of Dizzy Gillespie and all this stuff. You know, the old man's playing this. And he'd sit in front of this record place drinking a beer. Now, I don't know what this meant to him because I never really got personal. Did you ever really get personal with your old man? Really? Did you ever say to him, Dad, what did you think the first time you met the old lady? <laughs> You know, there must have been a time when he first saw this chick, you know. He says, oh, man, you know. And the next thing you know, oh, look what he's created, the whole thing, the house, the refrigerator, the, the, the empty saucer of beans, the, the record player, the beer cans, the bowling ball, the whole bit, all came from that one night when he walked in and saw this chick in the drugstore and said, turns out to be your old lady. I never asked him that. I'm sorry now that I didn't, but I never did. What'd you think of her? You know, you know it would be great to ask your mother. And what did you what did you actually see in the old man the first time you saw him? What did you think of him? Let me ask him those questions. The old man said, listen to this record. Bring it up. I could smell those empty beer cans now in this place. I could see the bowling ball sitting there. And he used to whistle with it. <laughs> Try whistling this. That's enough of that. You like that, huh? Good Lord, no, not you too. Huh? Yeah, that, you know, that's so bad it's camp. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, you know, one guy, one guy who, who digs this record, if I told you who it is who also digs this record, you wouldn't believe it. Louis Armstrong. That's right. I heard Louis say it. Just for what it is, Pops, it's great. <laughs> In other words, it makes a total statement. I mean, it's totally unabashed corn. Don't ever pick that again. Old man, just listen. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I hope, I hope you don't. Uh, I hope you don't suspect here now that I'm about to become sacrilegious. But there is a sacrilegious streak that runs through me. Now, uh, now that does not mean. Well, now, what is religion? First of all, I mean, you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to, you have to contemplate that for a minute before we get. We've got to get down to basic. Definitions here. Now, uh, well, now, no, wait, no, wait. We had a family of spiritualists in our neighborhood. Now, they used to sit around this table, and me and Schwartz and Flick and Bruner would sneak up and look in the house because all these cars would be in front of their house. You know, we'd go in side window and looked in one night, and they were all sitting around this table. And they had a red light above them, a red light bulb. And it was dark in there. And all these people were sitting around the table, and they were holding hands. And right in the middle of the table was this bugle. 
And the, out of the bugle was a guy, a voice coming that said he was Abraham Lincoln. Well, now, you see a thing like that when you're nine years old. It's pretty hard to figure which way it's going to jump. I mean, life, all the way down the line. See, and I went home and I said to my mother, I said, uh, Mrs. Bonner is sitting there and he's talking out of a bugle on the table. Well, that didn't go over good. Well, it kind of did on, a, on one hand. On the other hand, I was, I mean, I had a little problem because my mother, and whenever she thought I was lying, she says, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. And it got to the point, you know, where I got so that I could taste, I could tell you what kind of soap by the taste of it. Even to this day, I might tell you that my favorite happens to be palm olive. I mean, sometimes when I'm, you know, really up there and I need to, I don't mind a little bar of palm olive soap. Now, again, I can't stand Life Boy. Life Boy has a stinging aftertaste. But a well-aged bar of palm olive is kind of nice. And so, you know, when you, when you sit there and all this stuff is pouring at you, bugles that sound like, uh, that sound like Abraham Lincoln, and people sitting under red light bulbs, and the old man listening to Clyde McCoy playing the Sugar Blues, and drinking his beer, and Uncle Carl sitting out on the back porch in the rain playing his banjo, and the lightning one time hitting the tree out in the back and knocking my Aunt Teresa flat. Well, after a while, you forget, you know, it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a mushroom cloud hanging over everything. You kind of contemplate the infinite. I mean, as much as you can see of it. And then, of course, uh, you, you, uh, you can't uh, do away with experience as an actual teacher. You just can't do it. I mean, I don't care how many books you read. Experience is the ultimate guide to it all. Now, it depends greatly on the kind of experiences you've had. Now, I want you to get close here and listen to some of the bad ones you can have. And yet, they're not really bad. Now, have you ever been a pin boy? You know what a pin boy is? You do. Well, you know what a pin boy is? And he's the kid that sits in the back of the bowling alley there, and those guys are laying them balls down in that alley. And uh, when they knock them pins down, you set them up again, huh? Well, now, I, I was a pin boy. I, I, I worked as a pin boy on Alley 7 and 8 in Georgia's Pin Bullion. How's that for a gasser of a name? The Pin Bullion. And I worked out at the old Pin Bullion and worked Alley 7 and 8 every Wednesday and Friday night of a very important phase since while I was just beginning to perceive the outside world. And I, I'm sitting back there, and I can remember sitting in that pit. You know, you sit down in a pit back there. It's all padded, see? And that ball comes shooting down at you. And who was bowling on Friday night? Well, this is why I hated Friday night. I hated Friday night. Now, most kids like Friday night because it means it's Saturday morning. It's the next day. But Friday night, man, was the ultimate drag because Friday night was the night that the guys from Inland Steel bowled on the alleys where I was setting pins. Now, Wednesday night was kind of fun. Because Wednesday night was open bowling, and little skinny guys with thick glasses would come. And sometimes would go by maybe 15, 20 minutes. You wouldn't even have to set up a pin, you know. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. They just, you know, they keep bouncing the balls down there. they come down the gutter, and you'd sit there and laugh and make snotty remarks. And You don't realize, you know, pin boys are constantly editorializing in the back there. And they, they're constantly betting on the guys that are bowling on their alley with the guy who's setting pins in the next alley, see. Well, one night, this Friday night, see, the Inn Steel open hearth and the plate mill guys were in. Now, now those were the two worst of them all because the guys that worked in the open hearth, there wasn't a guy in the open hearth. 
that was under Roosevelt Greer's size. Not one. I mean it, because of the work in the open heart. They just could not have used Woody Allen. That's that's the end of it. He just couldn't have made it in that field. So these were big guys, see. In fact, these guys used to hold the bowling ball in their hand the way most guys hold a softball in their hand. You know, they'd just pick up that ball like that and hold it like you'd hold a lemon or a grape, see. Sometimes they wouldn't even use the holes, you know, they just uh, to roll them. They'd just grab the ball and throw it, see. Well, it's the steel mill, the inland steel, open heart, versus the 100-inch plate mill. Now, the plate mill guys are the guys, if they were too big to work in the open heart, they put them in the plate mill. These guys at seven feet and went up. And uh, because of the nature of the work, it was even tougher than it was in the open heart. And so one night, I'm sitting on alley seven and eight. And there's this team from the plate mill is bowling on alley seven. Now, at that time, I was an untried stripling, a youth of remarkable naivete. I did not know what life was about. I'm beginning to get a glimmer now at this point of life. I think I may figure it out one day. The day has not come yet, but I'm having hints, <laughs> glints. And so here I am down there in the in the pit, sweating like a, already. You know, I'm starting to sweat because it was hot down there, and I'm wearing my T-shirt. Nothing but a T-shirt on, a pair of blue jeans, and I wore these tennis shoes, and the T-shirt says Superman on it. Now, it was a Superman T-shirt. It was, you know, everybody had a Superman. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. Well, you know, you, didn't you ever see the Superman T-shirts? I had a Superman T-shirt. And Schwartz had a Mandrake the Magician T-shirt. He was in the next, he was over in six and five. He was still the next pin. Well, now, Schwartz was a good head shorter than I was. But you see what he lacked in size he made up in ferocity. Uh, you know how little guys often are totally dedicated cuckoos? Yeah, oh yeah, there's nothing. Listen, it would, we, why do you know that, that Muhammad Ali came up here the other day? Cash is K. Why, we got three engineers, not one of them is over three feet tall, all three of them trying to pick a fight. Well, because he was there, just like Mount Everest. <laughs> now, Mount Everest is going to kill you. That's a fact. Mount Everest is going to drive you right down in the ground. He's going to screw you right down into the concrete. But you've got to go up and challenge him, right? Well, that's the way Schwartz was. Schwartz was maybe, with 64 pounds. Remember, we were about 14, 13, something like that. He was about 4 feet 9, had his Mandrake the Magician T-shirt on. I'm down there with my Superman T-shirt. And Schwartz has got a gang from the 100-inch plate mill, rolling over on alley 5 and 6. I got a gang from the open heart, rolling on alley 6 and 7. Well, about along about the middle of the second game, it started to get rough. Now, how does it get rough? Well, one big melter from the open heart says something bad to one of the guys from the 100-inch plate mill, and they started to talk back and forth between the alleys, and I could tell it. Now, who do they take it out on? Do they take it out on each other? No, no. The pins. See, why we like bowling. You know why so many people like bowling? It is it is truly a violent sport. I mean, you hit them pins and they fly. Man, you lay that big fat ball, that ball weighs how many pounds? You lay that down, that hits it with a force. Well, when there's a pin boy sitting down there, he is getting it all. Well, this big, this big mother, I'm telling you, this guy was nine feet tall from the plate mill. 
He lays a shot down there, and I saw him. You, you, you see the sign that says, don't loft the ball? You've seen that? This is the only bowler I ever saw that could throw the ball on the fly and land right in the middle of the pins. On the fly. He didn't loft it. He threw it, which is different. And so he throws that ball down there, and it bounces twice, hits in the middle of the pins, and kapow! The air was filled with pins. And I see Schwartz. He's over at six next to me. I see Schwartz spread eagle in the air. There are pins bouncing off the back of his head. He's catching one in the kid and one get him on the knee. I'll tell you, it's wild. Say, say, not, yeah, all the pin boys used to ache. I'll tell you, I've got knots all over the top of my head yet from setting pins. Schwartz is in the middle of this cloud of pins, see. And he goes back up against the back up against the cushions, and he falls down. And, and he's got a bottle of this knee-high orange, you know, this big quart-type bottle. And we used to, we used, when we were setting pins, you drink this bottle of orange as you, as you set, you know. And the orange, you'd, you'd be working so hard that your body wouldn't have time to change the knee-high orange to sweat. You'd drink this stuff, and you would sweat. Knee-high orange would come right out of your T-shirt, and it would still be knee-high orange. You know, you could wring your shirt out and drink it again, you know. So Schwartz is up there in the middle of the air with these pins all around him, and he lands in the back there, see. And I have a guy who's also now bugged because the guy he is bowling against is the guy that has just bowled this big strike, this big strike. So he says something to the guy, and he throws a ball. I saw it coming. Now, you know, man is a creature of instinct. Real instinct. We don't often talk about it, Corny, but he is. You know, sometimes when you walk in a place and you can sense bad news, that's instinct. They don't have to say nothing to you. You just sense it. It's in the air, you know. And there's a couple of guys sitting over at the bar, and you know that one of them is going to turn to you and give you the bad eye. If you look just a little too long in one direction, He's going to turn to you and say, who are you looking at? Well, then you better have a good reason. <laughs> good reason. We all know this. This is instinct. Say, well, I saw that ball coming down, and I knew it. I knew it. I just knew that ball was bad news. I don't know why. I just saw it. And, you know, it's a funny thing. When you lose your nerve doing anything, when you lose your nerve, you're going to get in trouble. It's when you lose your nerve. Well, I tried to go up on the top of this, this pad. I, 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 I hopped up real quick. I saw that ball. That's what I shouldn't have done. I should have watched it, see. And while I have turned to get up to the top of the pad, she hit. Well, I felt a pin hit me in the back. It caught me right below the, you know, the last vertebrae there, what they call your, your, uh, your tailbone. I got hit by a pin on that tailbone, I want to tell you. I must have gone four feet in the air. And that guy down at the other end of the bowling alley laughed. He laughed. He saw that pin catch me in midair, you know. He was one of these big fat guys that bowl with sunglasses on. Look out for that type. And he laughed. Well, Schwartz was wading out of a pile of pins over in his alley. I was pulling one out of my kidney. I climbed back in here, and that was the night that Schwartz introduced me to the pin boy ploy. He takes the bowling ball. Well, I don't know why I can tell you this or not. He takes the bowling ball, and Schwartz looks over at me. He gives me a funny look. Reaches in his back pocket. Well, I better not tell you. Well, I'll tell you what he did. 
he reaches in his back pocket and takes out a tube of Vaseline. All that, now, he had been a pinboy for a good year before I became a pinboy, and I was learning. And he takes a little shot of Vaseline, he puts it on his thumb, and he just gouges it into the pinhole, into the hole there, you know, the thumb hole. I want to tell you, you never saw a man's bowling game downhill so fast. The net guy down, and he couldn't figure out what was wrong. He was bowling like at about six strikes, and all of a sudden he's throwing them in alley eight. You know, he's bouncing them off the ceiling. And one time he dropped that ball in right on his foot. And <laughs> Schwartz is down there putting Vaseline in the bowling pin. He's sticking it down in the hole. Well, then he says to me, he says, he says, you want to get that guy? And I'm hanging onto the pad, saying I'm getting banged from the... He says, he says, I'll tell you what you do. He says, move the three pin a quarter of an inch to the left. I said, oh, yeah? Okay. So I bring the rack down like that, and as I pull it up, I just, with a quick switch of the left hand, I moved the three pin just so so little you could hardly see it. That guy bowled 132 on that game, and he was a 200 bowler. That three pin stood there, man, like concrete. No matter what, he'd, he'd, it, the ball would hit it direct, and it would bounce right off. The ball, the three pin, and just stand there. And so that night, it was the pin boys versus the bowlers. And all up and down the line, every pin boy was doing his bit. I saw Fleck take one ball, and uh, he'd gotten a shot in the left knee. He took that ball, and he just went into the thumb hole and threw it back. <laughs> and it got, yeah, don't worry, we get it. It got so bad. Now, I don't know whether or not you, you're, you're interested in the story, but it got so bad, it got so bad that night that at one point I saw something happen in the bowling alley. Now, you, you know, you, you, uh, we all know about bowling. But I saw a thing happen to Bowling Alley, which today, still today, stands to me as one of the greatest gestures I've ever seen in the Bowling Alley. And, and, and Schwartz did it. This was late in the third game. And this big guy, oh, this, the biggest guy, the biggest man I ever saw, was bowling from the tin mill. And he was throwing him down at Schwartz. And every, every shot, boy, they, and he'd loft that ball, would come skipping down that. Nothing a pin boy hates more, because you can't judge a ball, see, that's skipping. Uh, you can judge a ball that's hooking. You can judge a straight ball. But let me tell you, a skipping lofter, oh, that can go any direction. And those pins, oh, I, I listen, I saw a pin boy knocked out for three hours one time, knocked cold by a shot. Oh, those pins fly. And so this guy is laying down that skipper, and it is hopping, skipping, and skidding in. He's throwing that ball. He's mad, see. He got, a, he got into an argument with his wife that night, see. And he sees that old lady down there at that head pin every time he lets it go. And he is getting madder and madder, see, because he ain't hitting the head pin, see, so it's bugging him. So by about the middle of the third game, he's bowling about 112, something like that. And he has thrown that ball down with a wild, fanatic of a band. He's just throwing that ball, see. And Schwartz kept hollering. He keeps hollering, hey, cut, out, cut out the lofting, man. And the guy's, you set the pins, I'll bowl, kid. You set the pins and shut your mouth. And Schwartz squinches down lower. And he just keeps setting them pins, sweating. I can remember shoulder blades sticking out of the back of his Mandrake T-shirt, just like a couple of like a couple of shovels. He's leaning over there, sweat pouring out, and he's got bumps and, and uh, he's got cuts all over him. And finally, Schwartz stood up. He took the ball. Now listen to this: the bowler had just rolled that ball down there. See, it has skipped twice. It picked up the seven pin and knocked it about eighteen feet in the air. Caught Schwartz again in midair. Schwartz lands into the pit. He takes the ball. Now, listen to this. And we were all pin boys, see. 
And the thing that pin boys like caddies do, caddy, you know, many great golfers come out of the caddy ranks because they play golf all the time. Before they go out, you know, on their first job in the morning, and I was a caddy at one time, before you go out, you play like nine holes, maybe ten, maybe ten rounds before you get your first. You play free. And then after the golfers go home, you play in the dark. You just play all the time, see? And you don't even think about form. You just keep hitting the ball, hitting the ball. So you're real good, see? You're real good. Well, that's the way we were bowling. All afternoon when nobody's bowling, the pin boys would be bowling. And, and boy, talk about accuracy. Schwartz picks up that ball. Laid, that big man has laid that ball right in the middle of those pins and got Schwartz with a seven pin. Schwartz stood up, and he hollered something. Now, what he hollered, I know there's a lot of kids up now. <laughs> he just hollered out one word. Now, he was knee-deep in the pit. You know, that's a pit. He's knee-deep. He takes the ball. Now, remember, Schwartz was a good bowler. He bowls it back at the bowler. Right down the middle of that alley, and it went down there. And he didn't see it. See, he's walking away. And he hears that word, see. He turns around to see who hollered it, and he sees this ball coming at him. Well, now, Schwartz knew which way this guy was going to jump, so Schwartz had thrown a hook. That ball chased that guy right across that foul line, and he was running. He jumps up on the, on the return alley, you know, this return rack. He jumps up. That ball hit just below his feet, jarred the rack. He fell down on his you-know-what. He laid flat, see. The ball bounced and went through 38 bowlers. Just went through. You saw beers, Cokes. You saw a guy's, you know, cigarettes, pipes. You saw a guy's shoe fly up in the air. And it was a dead silence hung in that bowling alley for a second. And then the guy that was bowling on my alley, who was the guy from the open heart, started to laugh. With that, the guy from the plate mill who had jumped up on the return rack, who Schwartz had thrown the ball at, he got up onto his feet, and he said, What did you say, man? And the open hearth repeated it, only this time clearer. Well, the guy from the 100-inch plate mill took a swing at him, and the guy from the open hearth caught him on the rebound. You know, when big men swing, they tend to follow through. And so <laughs> he took a swing. I, I could feel the breeze all the way back in the pit. He took this big swing. With that, the man from the open hearth caught him right on the button just as he was going down. And it was that minute that it all started. And if you would like to know the word that Schwartz used on that historic occasion, you must be over 21. We'll send it to you in a plain sealed wrapper if you'll send your name and address. 